G'day, welcome back to the Rewind Podcast, brought to you by the Handshake Agency. I'm Steve Bell. This is the second and concluding instalment of our Billy Bragg Podcast. As we discussed at length in the first part, this conversation was initially meant to be covering Billy's One Step Forward, Two Steps Back tour of Australia, which was scheduled to happen earlier in 2020, but it's now been delayed to early 2022. The concept found him setting up shop on each stop of the tour for three nights, over the course of which he would be exploring his first six albums, taking us back to an era spanning from the early 80s through to the mid-90s. In the first episode, we took a look at Billy's first three albums, back when he was still largely in busking mode, taking on the world with just his electric guitar and empathetic worldview, as he likes to call it, the Chop and Clang era. We now pick up the story in the late 80s, continuing on this fertile first period of the Bragg career arc. Despite the best efforts of Billy and his like-minded cohorts, Margaret Thatcher had won the 1987 election and remained Prime Minister against a backdrop defined by the Cold War, Apartheid, the Falklands War, the Miners' Strike, unrest in Northern Ireland, negotiations with China around the sovereignty of Hong Kong and Britain's proposed membership of the EEC. Billy's profile was on the rise. He'd been prominent in the Red Wedge movement. His 1986 album Talking with the Taxman about Poetry had broken the top ten in his homeland and 1987 compilation Back to Basics had collated his first two albums and his excellent 1985 Between the Wars EP, shining a light back firmly on his earliest material. He was ready to step back into the spotlight with his wonderful fourth album, Workers Playtime, released in September 1988, but just a few months before this, Billy enjoyed a most unexpected sojourn at the number one spot on the UK singles chart when his cover of the Beatles' She's Leaving Home a shared A-side with Wet Wet Wet's version of With a Little Help From My Friends, pulled him even further into the public consciousness. I should also point out at this juncture that Billy had moved beyond purely solo realms and started working more closely with other musicians to bring his musical vision to life. Amongst the many featured guests on Talking With The Taxman were the Smiths guitarist Johnny Marr and acclaimed British singer-songwriter Christy McCall, who as well as featuring on the Pogue's amazing Christmas song Fairy Tale of New York, had had a huge hit in 1984 with her cover of Billy's first single, A New England. When we move on to Billy's fifth album from 1991, Don't Try This At Home, we mentioned both Mara and McColl being involved again, so I just want to give a little history in that regard. As a side note, Mars R.E.M. bandmates Michael Stipe and Peter Buck also made guest appearances on that album. Enjoy part two of Rewind's chat with the great Billy Bragg. All right, well, let's move on to night three, mate. We're, we're into the late 80s now. Um, before Workers' Playtime, we'll just get... You, you had a brief moment in the charts there, piggybacking uh, Wet, Wet, Wet. You went to number one in, in the 80s? It was nice. It was an honorary number one. <laughs> Can you explain I, that for I me? Didn't, I, one, I didn't have to do anything to make it happen. It was all down to Wet, Wet, Wet. But most importantly, I didn't have to follow it up. <laughs> because... One of my label mates at the time were the House Martin, and, and they had a number one with Caravan of Love. And after that, you know, a top five single was a failure for them. And I sort of watched, I watched the need for number one singles kind of destroy the band. So um, I'm, I was excused all that. And I'm glad. I'm glad I was excused all that because I don't think I could have dealt with that pressure. I don't think I could have done the things I wanted to do while I was having to keep, you know, churning out 
number one hit singles. I'm not that. I'm not that. I'm the wrong guy to ask to do that. <laughs> <laughs> Some things I'm really good at. If you need a political song or someone to play on a picket line, give me a shout. Number one singles. That's not. I'm not that guy. I remember buying it at the time. I got it here somewhere. But what was the Beatles covers in aid of again? What was happening there? Uh, it was in a. It was in aid of a charity called Childline, which was a free helpline for uh, victims of, of uh, child abuse. That's right. Yeah. And I, I was in. It's basically it was a re-recording of uh, Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band on the uh, 40th anniversary. 20th anniversary, sorry, yeah. <laughs> 1988, 20th anniversary, I'm sorry, time has slightly Slipped warped away. my perception of it there, yeah, 87, yeah, 87, 88, so, um, because I was early in on the project, I had a choice of songs, and I chose She's Leaving Home, because I, I thought it pertained to the cause that we were raising the money for, and B, it was one of the few Sgt. Pepper songs I thought I could perform. Yeah. The other ones were a bit of a bit of an ask for me. <laughs> well, that segues into workers' playtime. But night three is obviously workers' playtime from '88. Don't try this at home. '91 and William Bloke in '96. So it's spread out over a, mm-hmm. a longer time. Workers' playtime is probably one of not just my favourite albums of yours, but of all time. Um, well, thank you. I, I just that resonated with me from the day I bought it back then. It shows a bit of a different side to you. I guess we've talked about this before, how your love songs are just so powerful but a bit overshadowed by the political side of it. And was this an, an instance of pushing that to the fore a bit? I think you've got to see Workers' Playtime as a, a, a post-Red Wedge album. Mm-hmm. You know, it came in the aftermath of Fascist 1987, Electoral Victory. So it's me trying to come to terms with that by focusing on a relationship which also was uh, a bit of a disaster, a bit of a breakup. You know, the relationship with uh, Mary from the Short Answer. Mm. Most most of the songs most of the songs are about that that relationship, and waiting for the great leap forward is my sort of. Sidebar, if you're wondering where my political head is at, it's here. You know, I've learned a lesson from Red Wedge, and that lesson is that music can't change the world. That's my usual excuses, you know. However, however, I'm still committed to trying to put across ideas. I'm not giving up, even though I know you can't change the entire world. That doesn't mean you can't try. That doesn't mean you can't offer a different perspective. So that was my way of sort of, you know, this is reality, so give me some room and all that kind of stuff. It's my way of saying, look, I'm, I may be beaten and bloodied, but I'm still up for the fight. On, on both Taxman and Workers' Playtime, there was more instrumentation and more other musicians involved. Was that just like an organic evolution, or were you consciously trying to go no, beyond it was, the it one was more man? organic. It was more organic, you know, when I... When I when, by the time we got to Workers' Playtime, I decided I was a soul singer. And so I needed, I needed a band to be able to carry that off. I mean, Wiggy was uh, more involved in that record. Uh, Cara, TV was in the studio with us. Um, and you know, I, got, I got to work with uh, uh, Joe Boyd, who'd been producing uh, 10,000 Maniacs on R.E.M. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to 
just make another life's a riot. It needed to be, it needed to push things forward. So he, he brought in Danny Thompson, who played double bass, um, Mickey Waller, the drummer who, who used to play with uh, Roger Stewart, who was Wiggy and I were big fans of. We we invited him. We liked his lazy style. And it became a more of an ensemble record. But I think that's a, that was a good thing. Yeah, it worked wonderfully. I mean, and then Don't Try This At Home even extended that a little bit further. Um, there's some bigger guests, obviously. You've got Johnny and Kirsty back, but then there's the REM guys and more drums, I guess, too. That was a really yeah. sick... Well, what what happened was when we were me and Grant Showbiz who produced that album, um, it'd been my sound man for a couple of years, and he produced stuff for the Smiths and he produced stuff for the Fall. So while we were working in his studio, and I think we were demoing Sexuality, and Johnny Johnny was hanging around. Johnny was in London. He came around to see us, and he kind of glommed on to Sexuality. And said, oh, I'd really like to do some stuff with this. Do you mind if I sort of take it away and, and work on it? And we were like, sure. You know, we, we hadn't really properly started the record. So, you know, about three months later, he comes back with this shimmering pop single uh, that you hear on the record, you know. Um, and me and Grant realize now we've got to make an album that that doesn't sound out of place on. So we've got to really up our game now. But it was kind of good for me because I, I needed to have a shot at being a pop star. I needed to, to at least, you know, that's where we, it was leading to, you know. So having, a, having, you know, sexuality as a lead single and don't try this at home and all that kind of stuff, you know, there was a potential there to to make a huge breakthrough. But the um, the problem was the music sounded incredible, but I was still Billy Bragg. And that had a lot of political baggage with it. And I wasn't about to surrender that baggage. I was still writing those political songs. You know, they're there, accident waiting to happen and stuff like that. They're all there on the record. And at the time, you know, after uh, after Thatcher got elected again, particularly in 1999, uh, the... the, the Tories won again in 92, people were starting to drift away from politics and that. It was moving on towards, you know, a more baggier sound. So I still sold the same amount of records, around 120,000 records. It didn't really make that great big difference. And in some ways, it's probably good that, that I didn't burst through with that because I think it would have left me in a bit of a dead end trying to be a pop star. I'm not, I'm not, really built for that sort of thing I'm, I can I can do it if I have to if you give me the give me the bits I can put the put them together so they look like a pop star picture but underneath it all I'm still I'm still basham out brag I'm still the you know the perennial busker that's who I am so you know I, I, I see Don't Try This At Home as a high watermark in that first phase of my career and then I and then I see uh William Bloke is the sort of beginning of the second phase because what happened between um, Don't Try This At Home and William Bloke was that the Cold War ended, the Berlin Wall came down, the Soviet Union disappeared, Thatcher resigned, and I became someone's dad. Now, any one of those reasons were a good enough reason for me to change the way I approach music. All 
five of them together in a two-year, three-year period, it's bound to have ramifications. If I'm writing songs that are true to who I am, it's bound to be reflected in the music, and that's how we get to, to William Bloke. Yeah, yeah. Is, is songs like From Red to Blue and The Space Race is Over, is that predicated from you becoming a dad and then looking back at your own youth? I think it is, yeah. I think it has to be. The key one is Brickback. Mm. You know, the baby in the bathroom. That that was the um that was the first song I wrote after our Jack was born. After a long period of not writing because my world had been turned upside down by you know the the having having to look after a baby. You know, it was like fabulous but at the same time took up all the space. And I began to wonder if I'd ever if I'd ever write songs again, if I'd ever find my way back to it. I remember having a conversation with Johnny Marr where he said that all the ideas that he had for songs after he'd become a parent, when he played them to his wife, she said, that's from Thomas the Tank Engine. <laughs> you know, the, rep- the repetition of watching the kids' cartoons, it sinks in on you. You know, our, our Jack had a had a video called Spider in the Bath and there was a song in every single one and I started hearing those songs over and over and over and over again and I felt you know I've got to get out of this so what happened was my manager uh, booked me in for a session for the John Peel show and I you know if you're going to do a Peel session you really had to do new songs you couldn't go in and play old songs on a Peel session just wasn't done so I needed new songs. So the night before, I literally, the night before I sat down and wrote Brickback. And I can remember about one in the morning, not just a sense of satisfaction that I'd written a new song, which is always great, but knowing that not only would I be able to do this, but my, my songwriting would be richer for it because it, now it would take on board this fabulous experience that I had of being a parent. So it was a, it was a really big song for me, Brickback. Uh, for me, for my partner, and for our son, who still, you know, points out that he's the baby in the bathroom, you know. <laughs> Even though he's 26 now. <laughs> Playing guitar himself. It's Indeed, quite... in the band, yeah. <laughs> it's stripped back. Was that just what you were feeling at the time? Like, um, not, it's not back to basics. It's not electric guitar all the way through, but it's quite contemplative record. It is, yeah. Uh, that's where I was. I mean, that, I mean, I think that my records do reflect where my head is at the time. How, how else would I, would I make them, really? Mm. I'm trying to hold up a mirror to the world, but also a mirror to myself. That's, you know, and as a songwriter, the best advice I could ever give to anyone is be true to yourself. Fantastic. I know, like, now you've had this chances to, you know, look back over all these periods. I know you always say you don't have a favourite song or a favourite era. Your favourite one's always the next one. But do, do any of these periods seem to resonate more with the fans is is it sort of equal or do some uh, periods well, get more well i can tell life? you wherever 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 we go in the world day two always sells uh, sells out first ah, so it's the early stuff it's the first it's the first three albums how do you feel about that i'm cool i'm good with that if that's what people need i'm here to get, i'm here to deliver that you know i, I i'm very aware that i'm part of their lives in some way and that they're they're coming to connect with something that is very important to them so my job is to be as true as i can to the original material and not fuck around with it 
Okay, as we move on to discuss Billy's long relationship with Australia and his many fans down under, we mention a track he wrote called Yarra Song. The B-side to his 2002 single Take Down the Union Jack from that year's English Half English album, which is essentially about Billy enjoying Melbourne more than the rest of Australia because it rains there enough to remind him of home, unlike the rest of the country. Poor Brisbane's written off in one verse as just scorched earth. And yes, the song mentions Billy barracking for St Kilda numerous times, which I assume is fairly and squarely due to the influence of his mate and frequent collaborator Mick Thomas, an avid saner which made me lose my tiny mind the first time I heard this song when Billy played it during his solo set at Livid Festival in Brisbane back in 2001. I've heard a recording of that set, and you can clearly hear me yelling out in joy at the first mention of Billy barracking for the Saints. So sad. What about um, your relationship with Down Here? You've been coming here, like we said, for over three decades now. I love the Yarra song, um, not just because you say you're back for St Kilda in it, but you clearly have an affinity for Australia, even though that song is talking about missing home a lot. I think the thing about it is that the Australian people have an affinity for me. I've always felt very welcome in Australia. I've always been, uh, you know, people have always wanted to come and see me play. The shows often sell out. I mean, after all this time, for people on the other side of the world to care about what you're saying and what you're doing, it's, it's a real privilege. It's a real privilege. And I don't feel I've done, you know, a proper world tour if I haven't come to, well, not only to um, Australia, but also to New Zealand as well. It's a place in New Zealand called Dunedin on the South Island. And I'll be going there after we've been to Australia, in Australia, and it's, it's physically the furthest city from where I'm sitting at the moment in my home. <laughs> And if I haven't been there once every album, I don't feel like I've properly toured the world. Because I know there's people down there who are into what I'm doing. And, and, I, and I try my hardest to, to maintain a connection with them because they've been, as I say, they've been very good to me. I mean, when we came to um, Sydney on the, on the um, Shine a Light tour, Joe, Joe couldn't believe that we were playing the Sydney Opera House. And he was like, wow, these guys must really love you. And I'm like, yeah, they do. They really do. Whether I'm playing the Sydney Opera House or some student bar somewhere or right out in the sticks out in Castlemaine, people are really into what I'm doing. And I, you know, you've got to respond to that. You know, the Yarra song is all about affection. It's all about connection. It's all about feeling um, a, some resonance for what I'm doing with what you guys are doing. And it's hard to put your finger on it exactly, but, you know, Australia has always been very, very good to me and I've always done my best to to try and pay that back. That's ultimately what you've always been trying to do, isn't it, forge that connection? It is a very important connection. I mean, I'm a live performer. I will go in the studio, but, you know, that's not where I feel at home. I feel at at home up on the stage there. I feel at home you know, getting the audience response. I feel at at home on my own on the stage, on the tightrope, holding my own in front of an audience of whatever size. That's where I feel most, most myself. So, you know, as I say, to be able to uh, travel around to the other side of the world and and get a great reaction to that, um, it's going to make you want to come back. Now, just prior to this chat, back in February, Billy had released a political manuscript... As mentioned earlier, he's written some fascinating books and other bits and pieces over the journey. And this one was titled The Three Dimensions of Freedom. 
It's a short book, more akin to a pamphlet at 15,000 words, delving into the connections between liberty, equality and accountability and how this applies to notions of free speech in modern politics. Now, as Billy explains these principles, a lot of it's posited in relation to Donald Trump's presidency, whose tenure in the White House has showed why so many of these principles can be so easily ignored or trodden upon. But it's important to note that just because Trump's political career seems to be over for now, it doesn't lessen the importance of these principles in a wider sense. As writer-philosopher George Santayana is credited with saying, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Also, Billy here mentions a falling out with Morrissey of the Smiths. He's been a long-time fan and admirer of that band. He toured with them in the 80s during Red Wedge. He's covered their song Gene as a B-side and also played many of their other songs live. But back in mid-2019, Billy made headlines after going public with a statement condemning Morrissey's endorsement of a certain far-right anti-Muslim group, at one point saying, As an activist, I'm appalled by this transformation, but as a Smiths fan, I'm heartbroken. Obviously, um, you know, your activism's a huge part of, you know, your persona and not just your career, but yourself. It's a strange time we're in. I've not had a chance to read The Three Dimensions of Freedom yet, but I've read some really fascinating treatises on it. Can can you give me a brief summary of what you're um, saying in that book and how that ties into the current situation? Sure. Everybody is in favour of freedom, but it's one of those things that's difficult to define. You know, it's... um, It's a bit like happiness. It means different things to different people. So at a time when we're um, facing the challenge of someone like Donald Trump, whose um, idea of freedom is uh, the ability to say whatever he wants, whenever he wants, to whoever he wants via Twitter and have no comeback on that. Um, this is dangerous times because, you know, freedom is a positive thing, but there, there are dangerous types of freedom. And one of those dangerous freedoms is impunity. And Trump is someone who acts with impunity. And I'm afraid Boris Johnson, our prime minister, is also a man who's lived his entire life with impunity. He's never really been held to account for his personal life, his private life, or his political life. I mean, uh, you know, since he's become prime minister, he's attacked all of the institutions that seek to hold those in power to account. The judges, uh, the BBC, uh, he refuses to allow his ministers to appear on their main um, news program. He's, uh, you know, not given any uh, press conferences like Trump. So we, we live in a time where um, accountability is under attack from um, authoritarians. Authoritarianism is a is a uh, another word that doesn't really have a, a, an absolutely clear definition. But I would argue that authoritarianism begins when powerful people feel they can act with impunity. You know, it's not the same as totalitarianism, it's not fascism, but it's the beginning of that situation. And unfortunately, um, 
we live in a time where authoritarianism is on the rise, obviously in China, obviously in, in Russia, uh, obviously in places uh, uh, like Turkey, but also in, in, in the UK with the, with the Tories and in the US with Trump, some other European countries as well, Italy, Hungary, Poland. And as a, um, a writer, which is probably what I am rather than a songwriter, I'm a, I'm a, basically I'm a, I'm a communicator. My job has always been to try and identify where the problem is to alert people to that. I don't, I don't come as a songwriter or as a writer to offer solutions, but I'd, I'd like to think that I can offer a perspective, a different perspective that suggests where the problem lies so that people can then, you know, look, take that up and, and use their own perception to, to work out what they can do about that. And I think accountability and equality as well are the things that are missing in our in our current definition of what constitutes freedom so free speech is the absolute basic fundamental you know the right to express your opinion liberty is the absolute bedrock of freedom of course it is but without equality you know the the right of everybody to express their opinion if you don't if you don't respect everybody else's rights um you know, without without equality, free speech, liberty is nothing more than privilege, really. But without accountability, that's when liberty becomes the most dangerous freedom of all impunity. So I'm trying to I'm trying to flag up what I see as a an undermining of real freedom, uh, because people are trying to um, bypass equality and accountability and just have their idea of free speech. And it kind of um, plays into where politics is anyway, because the, <clears throat> the big um, single-issue movements that have defined the 21st century are all accountability movements. Me Too, Black Lives Matter, Extinction Rebellion, the school strikers. You know, they're all about holding the powerful to account. So I'm trying to sort of flag up the idea of accountability so that it becomes a red line that we that we have where we hold that line and say no you know you, you're going to be held to account for your actions you may know i fell out with morrissey last year big time he can say whatever he wants that's his right and i respect his right to say whatever he wants but he can't say whatever he wants and not be challenged about it and that's that's where the argument was he was complaining bitterly uh, that he, he couldn't, you know, he's not allowed to say anything anymore. It says a man who, you know, whose every utterance is reported in the press. It's ridiculous. You know, he's complaining about being challenged. He wants to be able to act with impunity. I, all I'm doing in my criticism of him is seeking to hold him to account for what he said. In the same way as I expect to be held to account for what I'm saying to you now and anything else I've said whether by you or on Twitter or anywhere else. I think, you know, without accountability, without the respect uh, that, is, that is absolutely crucial to equality, then, uh, you know, liberty is really not going to work for the majority of people. We need those three dimensions to, at the very least, to not just to hold those in power to account, but also to to create a framework so that we can have a, a discourse um, 
on social media that is respectful uh, and responsible and based on reason and not just screaming and shouting at each other and based on, on, uh, on anger. We need a bit more empathy. But most of all, we need a bit more accountability. And, and I've always been in the empathy business, and I'm now trying to focus on that as well. And I just think it, the, the times required something more than just a song. Much as it, I love writing songs, and much as I believe in the power of songs to be able to offer a different perspective, I felt it needed something a bit more. And that's why I wrote, I mean, it's not a long book. It's only a pamphlet. It's a concise book. But it gave me the opportunity to... Uh, you know, have this debate, be able to speak to you and your listeners about this. And that's what I've always used my, my music to do is to give me a platform with which to discuss issues that I feel strongly about. Are you confident we can make that shift to a more empathetic society? If you're going to be a socialist, you have to believe that the glass is half full. If you believe the glass is half empty and everyone's just out for themselves and they're all, you know, going to do the worst thing, then you're, you're never going to make those connections that you need to make. So, yeah, I do believe that people given a choice would rather show empathy to one another than show uh, anger and show, uh, uh, you know, vile attitudes to one another. I don't accept that we live in Donald Trump's world. I do not accept that. You know, I think that, I think that the majority of people reject that. So where do we where do we start pushing back? We start pushing back. You can push back ideologically, of course you can, and some people do that. But that's a little bit 20, 20th century. Now, for better or for worse, I don't like it, but it's where we are. Politics has become more about feelings, unfortunately. But that does give us the opportunity to make the case about empathy and to talk about accountability, you know, principles, rather than ideological uh, driven debates. I don't think that's a bad thing because in many ways we live in a post-ideological period. That that will change. Ideology will, will come back in some form, but at the moment we need a language with which to um, address these issues and to take on the Trumps and the, and the Johnsons of this world. And, I'm, and through my songs and through my uh, writings, I'm trying to give people some uh, suggestions about what that language might consist of. And finally, just before we finish, this last section mentions an interview Billy did at the NME Awards in London back in February, where he praised frontman Matthew Healy of the 1975 for saying that he'll no longer play at music festivals with a lack of female acts represented on the bill. It seems like so much of society has changed in many ways towards things you've been singing about for so long, whether it be gender equality or empathy or... um you know, accepting sexual orientation. There's still a long way to go, though, isn't there, as um, you're uh, buying into the discussion with uh, the 1975 about festivals and um, gender equality yeah, there? there is. The, you know, the struggle continues. It never ends. There's always new people coming along. I've had to tweak the lyrics of sexuality now to recognise the uh, transgender community, and rightly so, because, you know... So a woman in America said to me, it's a bit 20th century there, isn't it, gay rights? And I was like, yeah, actually, you're right, it is a bit. Let me just, bear with me a second. <laughs> Give me a pen and paper. Let me just tweak this here. And so now, I, you know, because I'm never, you know, never going to experience what it's like to be uh, discriminated against 
because of my sexuality or my gender. But I can be an ally. That's the most I can do is to be an ally. So, you know, I think for for some people in the gay community, sexuality sent them a signal that there were straight allies out there. I only saw a couple of people talking about two completely different people today in tweets just referring to that song and how it helped them. And so, you know, I need to up my game because there's another front line now with the uh, uh, issues of, of uh, transgender. And I need, to, I need to be trying to, you know, express uh, my support for those, those people who feel marginalized as well. So it's an ongoing process, Steve. It changes all the time. Some songs can just come back again and, and still work, but others need, you know, they just need a little slightly retooling and just, you know, bring them up to date. But that's got to be a great thing in a way that a song that was so relevant just a few decades ago needs to be changed now because of societal change. It's a small change, but it's a it's a uh, an important change, and I, I know it makes people smile when I fit it in there. So that's you know that's kind of what what you're trying to do with the song. Fantastic. Well, Billy, mate, our time's pretty much up, so I'd just love to say thank you so much for having a chat today, and um. Oh, I'm super, my pleasure, Steve. I'm super excited about this I'm tour. Very much, I'm very much looking looking forward to uh, to coming to Australia and playing these shows. You know, the highlight of the evening for me is when, at the end, we get to the big, loud sing-along song, if it's New England or whatever it is, and I put the lights up for the audience to sing, and everyone's smiling, and I know I've done my job then. It's great. I've, you know, I've, come, I've come a really long way, and, and I haven't wasted... Their time and I haven't wasted my time. I've come. I've done what I've come to do. I put a smile on everybody's face and sent them away, singing my songs and thinking about love and the world and everything. Fantastic. Well, man, I cannot wait. So uh, take care and safe travels, and we'll see you here in a couple of months. Looking forward to it, Steve. All right, thanks, Billy. You take care, mate. All the best, mate. You too. Bye see now. Ya. Good night. So there you have it, the one and only Billy Bragg. Rewind's first international excursion. Back to Aussie waters from now on. Thanks heaps for checking it out. Shout out to Dollabar for the theme tune. And don't forget, if you've enjoyed listening, please rate and review Rewind through your favourite platform or podcast app. And we'll see you next time. You've been listening to Rewind with Steve Bell, produced by Craig Trewick and Andrew Mast, recorded and engineered by Zig Parker for Handshake Agency.